0: This morning, I must confess to you that focus has been an issue for me this week. Just interesting. This focus has been an in, just time management and focus has been kind of a thing for me this week. I don't think I've done very well with either one. Um, and as I was thinking about that yesterday, I had to go get an oil change on one of our vehicles, and I was away from that, and a podcast that I was listening to, um, the leader of that podcast, he said, man, I've had a struggle focusing this week, and a lot of people that I've been talking to, a lot of other pastors, and he said, a lot of the pastors I've been talking to have have had the same thing, just struggling with focus, and I said, well, that doesn't make me feel any better, although it does make me feel not so alone, and uh, so (laughs) doing that, You know, one of the reasons why I've struggled with time management and focus this week is because there is so much going on, right? So much going on. And um, what has helped me during this season is what God is doing in you, in your lives. As I see God walk with you and God shape you and do things in your life, that brings me to kind of a place where I say, all right, Lord, there's a lot of chaos and a lot of crazy stuff, but I see you working in this person's life and that person's life, and I have this habit that every night before I go to bed, I, I get in bed, I lay my head on the pillow, and in order to get myself kind of, I struggle shutting down my brain, right, so I'm still thinking about all these things. So what I've been trying to do over this last little bit is to, when I put my head on the pillow at night, I start telling God, thank you for different things. And I try to fall asleep telling God, thank you for different things. Because if I get to, in a thankful kind of place with the Lord, a lot of what wants to draw my attention off to, like, into the negative and those things that keep you up at night, those things fill my head space. So I try to like get thankful and then fall asleep like that. So sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But at least I think to myself, if I can't sleep, I'm giving thanks to the Lord for things. And I'm very thankful that God... Did not leave you and I in our sin. Amen? And then there's the struggle of that. There's the struggle of our sin. There's, of course, we get forgiven for it, and that, that's immediate. We get forgiven. And we, we get cleansed of that, you know, as far as our positional holiness with Jesus is one way to describe that, like as far as what, how God sees you and me. So when you come to Him and you surrender to Him and He forgives you and then He cleanses you, you're holy before Him. But then there's that sanctification piece, that working it out kind of piece. That thing where you say, okay, I've been forgiven. All right, that's that's great. When God looks at me, He sees me as pure and brand new. Okay, that's fine, but I still have to live with me. And I still have to kind of work myself out of some things and grow into some new things and leave some things behind. And not only do you have to deal like, like with you as an individual person, but you are a relational being. You relate to others. You relate to your family. You relate to your, your, your co-workers, your neighbors. We relate together as a community. And so like if I'm working through stuff like a lack of focus and a lack of time management and if I don't really focus on writing the messages and if I'm when I'm with you I'm not really with you right so if I'm talking with you personally but yet I'm thinking about something else see that affects that so you and I however my life is with Jesus though forgiven though I'm positionally purified I'm still somewhere in this sanctification process where the Lord is working on my life but all the things that have yet to be fixed they're causing tension between Maybe me and Susan or me and my kids or you or how I navigate being a pastor or how you navigate doing what what you do. And as we navigate that, it's kind of at the beginning of our Christian experience, all those kind of really obvious sins, right? Like the, the, the really big ones, maybe even the big sins in your life that you've violated God's law and you've done things that you know you're not supposed to do and you've affected your life and you've affected people in your life and those kinds of things. And so what happens is that we start to deal with those obvious things. And then as we walk with Jesus for a little bit, we begin to settle in on some of those big things that we came to Jesus, some of those really maybe negative behaviors or or harmful thought patterns or these kinds of things. And so what happens is we kind of clean up our act, kind of, We kind of get our external world kind of in order to where now we can kind of dwell together and be be in somewhat of a peace. But then there's that deeper work of our heart that sometimes we don't step into all the way. So we come to Christ and we do the initial thing. We clean up the initial stuff. But then the internal stuff sits. And it goes undealt with. And then it begins to really begin to affect our life, really begins to affect our relationships, and we don't quite get to where God wants us to go. We're just kind of forgiven. The big things are done, the external. So on the outside, people, it would appear as though you're really walking with Jesus and being successful and doing that. On the outward, your job is going well and all of that. But there's some internal things. I want to draw your attention to a thought this morning and that is this the God works in the heart of the individual excuse me God's work in the heart of the individual shapes the external community Just to settle in on that for a second so what God is doing in my heart right on the internal what God is doing on the internal with you is going to shape how our church then becomes on the outside right so if God is working in your life on loving others and being generous and reaching out, then our church will reflect that eventually, right? But if not, if all of us are in some sort of kind of chaos and, and internal turmoil, and inwardly we're, we're not doing well, outwardly we might look fine, but inwardly, no, we're not like doing that well, then our church will then affect affect that, okay? Our church will then be affected by that. So we have to look at this and think to ourselves, God's work in the heart of the individual shapes the external community. Let me take you to a passage of Scripture in the book of Jeremiah, and we're going to have to do a little bit of work on understanding the context as as we deal with this text. But let's read it in its entirety, and then we'll kind of unpack it a little bit and give you some context and hopefully have a better understanding. So Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 31, it's about a little past halfway in your Bible. (laughs) The prophet Jeremiah, speaking to the land of Judah, says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 34, continuing, he writes, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now that passage of Scripture sounds like very encouraging, right? I mean, this is an an amazing, encouraged passage. We can kind of pull that passage out, and we can put it on T-shirts and coffee mugs and posters and plaster it all over the place, and we can get really excited about this new thing that God is going to do. But let's back up and kind of understand where we're at in the context of the story. Because the prophet Jeremiah um, is is known um, unfairly sometimes as like the weeping prophet, right? And some Bible scholars write about Jeremiah, that he had, he had like, strong emotional challenges in doing his, his work. And I've known some pastors that have struggled with depression and anxiety issues, um, pastors that have struggled with various, even some, some mental disorders and, and doing those things. And what that does is that forms in them this strong reliance on the Lord. Because sometimes they're overcriticized, sometimes they're kind of rejected, Sometimes they point at themselves and say, well, I'm not like this pastor or that pastor, and so I have this difficulty and so I'm not as good. So it really drives them to this place where they know they're, not self- they're less self-reliant. Some pastors that have a lot of gifts in certain areas become too self-reliant and then crash and burn. And some pastors, maybe like Jeremiah, that Jeremiah struggles with some of these things. He struggled with emotional challenges, and this really caused him to drive in, dive into the Lord, because the passages, and excuse me, the prophets of the Old Testament, they were usually bearers of really bad news. <laughs> and so can you imagine someone with, with emotional difficulties, someone, all the weeping prophet, he just cried everywhere he went, every time he preached, He cried. And then some people would start getting irritated. I'm not going to go to that guy's church. He's going to cry every week. He's, he's always talking something about something negative, and he's crying, and this is not what I want in a pastor. And so he was constantly kind of rejected. And in those days, most, most um, prophets were rejected. You see, what happened with Jeremiah is he was called into ministry in the 13th year of, the king, of King Josiah's reign. Now that might not mean much to you until you discover that King Josiah became the king of Israel at a time when he had followed 50 years of corrupt leadership. 50 years, and the last two of those corrupt years were the leadership of his own father. And when we're talking corrupt leadership, we're talking about this notion that the worship of Israel, because Israel at the time, it wasn't a a representative democracy like we live in today. It was what's called a theocracy, which meant that the nation was ruled by God through prophets, priests, and kings. Okay, It wasn't ruled by a president, vice president, you know, a congress and those things. It was God, prophet, priest, king. And that was how they led this. And so the corruptness of the nation was in direct correlation to its worship. And Israel throughout its history always struggled with wanting to be like other nations. You'll notice in a lot of the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, you'll notice a lot of put salt in this, don't put salt in that, no leaven in this, none in that, don't, you know... There was even like a meme out there somewhere that God hates shrimp because they weren't allowed to eat like those kinds of things. And so all of this kind of thing going on, God was always trying to make his nation distinct from other nations and how they him and the things that they practiced. But the nation of Israel, they were constantly fighting against that. They were constantly looking around at other nations and however those other nations behaved, they wanted to behave. They were like that junior high kid looking for acceptance. And so what they would do is it went beyond, I want to wear pants like they do or have their hair cut like they do or listen to the same music. It was, we want to worship their gods like they do. Because most of the surrounding nations, they were what's called polytheist. They believe in many gods. And as they believed in many gods, they would try to take Jehovah God or Yahweh. They would try to take Yahweh, which is the name for our God, right? So they would try to take Yahweh and they would just include him with the worship of all their other territorial gods. The God of this and the God of that. And then they would bring Yahweh in and try to worship him like that as well. So the nation of Israel, their worship became very clouded. In fact, if you walked into a place of worship, you experienced worship in those days at the beginning of Josiah's reign, you wouldn't know where you were. You would have no idea. You would say, is this like the Jewish worship of Yahweh or is this like the worship of... Some of the surrounding nations. It had become so clouded and so perverted that you couldn't tell the difference between their worship of God and the worship of anything else. And then came Josiah. And King Josiah, as he was taking leadership in the eighth year of his reign, so he was the leader, a king for eight years, wouldn't you know, something very typical happened. One day, and as women were cleaning up around town, they discovered copies of the law of God, copies of what we probably was the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. And they brought these to the king. And can you imagine, after 50 years, people hadn't been doing any of this? It was as though you were cleaning up around a church and you found a Bible. And it was, what is this? Can you imagine if you were working around the church and maybe Joe's out doing some gardening and he looks behind a bush and he finds a Bible. And he pulls this book out and he comes to my office and he knocks on my door and he says, Pastor, look what I found. And I went, whoa, where did you find that? And then they began to read that in public. And as King Josiah began to read The law of God, he realized what a mess he was living in and what a disaster his country had become. So he calls his nation into revival. He gets rid of all of the other types of worship, cleans up all the places of worship, and he restores the worship to the true worship of God as God had prescribed according to the law. And there's this crazy revival that's breaking out across the nation. And they clean all the external. And as a nation, they once again look like the nation of God. Year 13 of his reign, Jeremiah is called into ministry as a prophet. And to summarize the whole thing for you, and you can read the book of Jeremiah for yourself, you can read that to summarize a lot of that, it is this. Jeremiah comes in and he looks around and he goes, whoa, the external is so good. But your heart your internal is is like a disaster. The church is starting to look good again, and there's Bibles out, and there's people refocusing, and there's getting rid of all kinds of other stuff. And on the outside, it looks like the nation is being put back together again. It would be like if we had some sort of revival in our political area, and God moved into our capital and began to reshape laws and reshape positions and bring about some of the things that our framers may or may not I believe may have had in mind and maybe there was this massive revival in this discovery in our nation's capital of the bible and that we are started to shape our laws according to the bible we started to shape about the things that we related to other nations through the scriptures can you imagine if that like place if there's this massive revival among our government officials, and the Bible became the primary source for our moral laws and our external laws. Can you imagine? Hmm. Well, that's what was taking place here, but see, that really didn't move them in the direction that they needed to move all the way. The externals got where they get to be, the laws got back into place, and there was the structure and the things, and, but the heart of the people was still corrupt. Now at this time, the Assyrians and the Egypt and, and e, the Egyptians had formed this alliance that made them the most powerful alliance in that part of the world, and they were they were conquering everything. But then that relationship started to break down, where the where the Assyrians and the Egyptians started to fight amongst fight amongst themselves and deteriorate in their push. Kind of in their authority began to wane on the global scene. And the Jews kind of thought, okay, this is our chance. We've revived our nation. God's going to get us back to being the most powerful people in the world. We're going to be the best nation, the most powerful nation, God's favored nation. The time of the Assyrians and the Egyptians are waning. We're going to be the most, we've got everything straightened out now. Our churches look like they should. We've got the law of God back in place. Our externals are looking good. They're waning. This is going to be great. But laying in the weeds was the nation of Babylon ever increasing in strength and in power. And God raised the nation of Babylon because the hearts of God's people were still corrupt. That their externals were fixed. Their laws were back to where they should be. Their heart was corrupt. And so the prophet Jeremiah, he had to be the one to step in and say, "Um." am Okay, the externals are good, but don't get too excited about this Babylonian and Assyrian relationship waning because there's another monster coming and that one will take you into captivity. And that one is being raised up because your hearts are corrupt before the Lord. But then before God takes His nation into captivity through the Babylonians, before God carries them off and all of that kind of story that you can read, in your Bible, the best description of that the time of that is the book of Daniel. God tells His people that I'm going to move you into captivity, but I'm going to do a work in you through that. And after I do that, I'm going to make this new covenant with you that was described in chapter 31. And so this wonderfully sounding passage is a promise of a new covenant. A promise of an internal work through personal connection with the individual. You see, at this point in history, they, had, they were a little bit opposite of that we have found ourselves in America today. The American church today, in my opinion, is too individualistic in nature and not corporate enough in nature. Um, in, in a lot of that is people say, I'm going to go to a church that meets my needs for me, that I can have the style that I want, the preacher that i want, the friends that i want, the stuff that i want, and i'm going to find a church, i'm going to shop for one, cuz shopping and hopping are the things of the day. And it's increased since covid because people churches shut down and then they started jumping all over the place and it's kind of weird. But so we have this individual nature of the church today is stronger. But here in this passage, they had kind of lost the individual aspect of their relationship with God. And they were people that believed that we are the collective and we are God's nation. And it was a little bit too nationalistic. They were out of balance there. Of course, as a nation, they were important. And of course, as a nation, we are important. But all those things need to be kept in balance. And for them, the corporate was the strong point, And they had let their individual relationships with God and the internal relationship with God go because... It would be like you in your life, you've got all sorts of chaos at home and internally, but you go to church and things go well there. It's like we'd have an amazing church, but your homes were all a disaster and your hearts were all back. So kind of that way. That's the way they were. And so God comes to them and He says, listen, I'm going to do a new work in you and this work is going to be less nationalistic, not devoid of it, but less and more Internal and individual. That's why God makes the promise that we made, that He made there. Now, now that you have the context, we can preach the sermon. Hopefully, you didn't understand a little bit about this time. That brought us to our second observation. That God's solution. Did I even did I skip something? Okay, good. Let's go to the, go to the next one. God's solution then to the national problem was the granting of individual access to himself see this was like brand new crazy news to the jews because they believed that god was approached through the prophets at the temple and that's how they approached god they didn't have direct access to god It's like, if we were pastoring here and we were doing that, you would believe that you had no personal one-on-one connection with God. I had that. I would go and meet with God and come back and meet with you. But you couldn't go directly to Him. And God says, we're going to get rid of that. And I'm going to come directly to you. And I'm going to come directly to your heart the internal part of you where you make all your decisions and where your identity is shaped. I'm going to come there. What a promise. What a promise. And so God's healing was going to come after a time of punishment. And the external obedience of the law and the revival that had taken place was going to go to that new level in the church of the Nazarene, in our 10th article of faith on the doctrine of entire sanctification, well, all that I've been telling you so far is that doctrine of entire sanctification. That when you come to Christ and He forgives you, and you are positionally holy in Him, as though you're as innocent, as though you've never committed one sin, but then He's going to go to you and say, okay, it's all fine and dandy. Your external you has been all cleaned up. You're a Christian. You're good to go. Now I'm going to come to you individually and start working on your heart. And there's going to be some challenges. There's going to be some things that I reveal to you that you're like, I don't like that. (laughs) And He's going to go to work on your heart. I want to talk to you about this passage because... In this passage, at this point, some people may be asking, if God is going to do all these things, how does that relate to us together? Right? Because in a country, in a place, in a time where you and I are more individual than ever, the fight for individual rights is very, very high. And the decline in church participation is increasing more rapidly as time goes on, you may notice. You may notice that around here. You may notice that at various things. But let's talk about that for a second. Because though God in this passage says, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor or his his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall know Me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So a lot of people look at that and say, see, I don't need to participate in the life of a church because me and God, I have my personal devotions with God, I watch online when I want to, or I pick and choose and I do this thing, but I don't really need to be involved in the life of a church because it's my individual thing. See, though they were belittling the individual thing, we've now flipped around and we're belittling the corporate thing. We're way out of balance where there needs to be a balance of this to be really healthy. To be really healthy, you, as an individual follower of Jesus Christ, need your own personal relationship with Him where you're spending quality time alone with the Lord in His Word, in prayer, in worship. Just you and Him. But we also need one another. And those things need to be kept in balance in order for us to be fully functioning human beings as God created. Because He created us to relate to Him one-on-one, But he also created us to relate to him corporately with the body as being the metaphor. So let's take a moment and look at some of these passages that hopefully will give us some resemblance of balance because we want something internal, but when God works internally in each one of your hearts, and I lay in bed at night thanking him for that work in you, then that should then affect the whole right? It should. So the first place I want to draw your attention, and we're going to move fast through a few passages of Scripture, so I became a nicer pastor this morning, and though I didn't put our initial text, I will put these secondary text on the screen for you, so you, you, you can relax or have fast thumbs and flip through, which is a great way to learn your Bible. But the first thing we learn is that yes, God does and is known individually. Look at Two passages of Scripture, one in the Old Testament and then one where Jesus quotes that Old Testament prophet. The first one is in Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54, starting in verse, I believe it's 13, says this. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Wonderful verse. Wonderful verse of Scripture. That if we're not careful with it, and for time's sake, I'm not going to do all the background on that like I did with Jeremiah. But if you took that passage of Scripture, there isn't a parent alive that's going to read that and go, good, I don't need to teach my children anything because God's going to teach them everything. God, they're all yours. No. imbalance. balance. But at the same time, as a parent and as a grandparent, as we participate with God and as we want our children to be part of the church, we are trusting that as we include our kids and as we instruct them ourselves, we are trusting that the Lord is going to speak to their hearts and shape and mold their young minds and lives. And it's a partnership and it's a balance. Jesus then quotes that prophet in John chapter 6, verse 45, where Jesus says this, It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So we start to get an indication that a lot of this teaching and a lot of this internal work is going to be about Jesus. And this is one of those crucial places in the New Testament where Jesus is a testimony unto himself as saying that it says in the prophets, and even if you study this out further, all of the prophets begin to speak about Jesus. Now take that one fact, if you're following me mentally, please, and look at this notion that we just read in Jeremiah. You see, this promise that he just made in Jeremiah is the promise of the work that he's going to do in the person of Jesus, and then we follow Jesus into talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. So here in Jeremiah, in our main text, we're hearing many, many years ago that after this season of purification, God's going to move in an individual way through the Messiah, through Jesus. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, He says, I'm the one that the prophets have been talking about. I am the fulfillment of Jeremiah and Elijah and Isaiah and Micah and all the other ones. He says, it's through me that I'm going to teach you. And then through Jesus' teaching, we discover later in the book of John that Jesus says, I've been with you, but I'm going to be in you. And I'm going to, in the person of the Holy Spirit, lead you and guide you and teach you all truth from inside of your heart. And so, we see God doing these things. But then we also notice that this knowledge does not eliminate the role or destroy my job security. Or others in the church because we discover in Ephesians 4 and many passages like that, particularly in this, for this time together, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4, and he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So though Jesus right now, literally through the person of the Holy Spirit is communicating to you, that's why some of you walk away and get mad at your spouse, then you think that your spouse was having a private conversation with me and then I about you. I don't do that. No one does that. I pray. I get into the Scriptures. I pray a very similar prayer every week. Lord, give me what need to hear. Because my job is to equip you to do ministry. Do you see that? So whose job is it? to Who are the ministers of the church? You. Well, I thought that was... I have to teach you how to do it. You have to do it. That's why one of my greatest joys as a pastor is when I hear about you guys serving and doing things, and I'm nowhere to be found. I love that. That's why I released and empowered to do ministry. Here, go do that. Yes, you make that happen. Are you going to Nope, Go for it. Because you are the ministers of the church. Not me. I'm the shepherd. I'm the pastor of the church. And I equip you. I, because God has vested authority into me and ordained me for ministry. And then I pour that out to you. Pastors are continually giving authority for, to people to go do things. And encouragement. And you, you go. That's part of my job. Is literally sit in that office. Thank you to those who made it look nice now. And go, yep, you can go do that. Yep, go do that. Go do that. Go, 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 go. Awesome. That's a church. That's bringing this individual and this corporate together in balance. Also, what really changed for the people is that we have immediate access to God through Jesus as part of the fulfillment of this promise in Jeremiah. Jeremiah. We find that in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, where we read this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus. The Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted, as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. So when you're going through it and you're tempted to go live your old way and you're tempted to do things that are going to absolutely destroy your life, you have direct access to what is called the throne of grace and that is God's throne where He dispenses power even though you don't deserve it. That's what grace is. Grace is God giving you power to do great things in your life when you don't deserve it. It's not a matter of deserving it. It's a matter of going and getting it before God and saying, Lord, I know I don't deserve it, but I'm begging for grace because I'm about to make some decisions and do some things that will destroy my world. And I don't want to live like that and I don't want to do that. I need you to give me grace. And God gives that and you have direct access to Him. And see this also, this individual nature also, it does not mean that we don't need one another. You and I need each other. We need fellow Christians. We are called to live in community as a body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 27 and 28 read this way, Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets and teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. And that passage goes on to say, Not all have this, and not all have that. Not all, but collectively, we do as a body, earlier in that passage, using the analogy of the body, he says, may the ear never tell the eye what it su- that it doesn't need it. Where well, I'm never to tell you, I don't need you. You have a different set of gifts than I do, so I don't need you. No, no, no. You have a different set of gifts than I do. I need you bad. Because I can't do what you do. But collectively, we can function as a body. So yes, in Jeremiah 31 God is promising to do a new work where He's going to come into them directly, and that is fulfilled through Jesus. But we need to find a balance, ladies and gentlemen. And the challenge then becomes for us to shift our focus. This is the final point, and then I'll quit. To shift your focus from the external problems to what God wants to do in your heart during this season. Notice, please, the word focus. I want you to shift your focus. I don't want you to stop thinking about the external things. You don't need to do that. But I need you to shift your focus. And look at what you're experiencing today in this season. In large part, during this season, for the last two and a half years, our focus has been on some important things, but maybe not the most important things. A lot of the focus of the last two and a half years has obviously been our health. Now, is that a concern? Yes but it can't be my singular focus. I can't let COVID rule my life. Is it part of what we're experiencing? Yep. Do we need to deal with it? Yes. Does it need to be the driving factor and what determines how I live my life? Absolutely not. My internal, what is God doing in my heart during this season? What does God want to accomplish in me and through me during this time when our nation is focused right here? Oh, do I need to focus on what's going on in the political realm? No. Do I need to address it and do my civic duty and participate and vote? Yes. Do I need to be aware of what's going on? Do I need to be aware of what people are saying? Yes. It's not my focus. My focus is, what is God doing in me during this season? Because as the nation of Israel at this time in the book of Jeremiah they had found the law of God and they had fixed their government. They had a wonderful, amazing king. After 50 years of rebellion and 50 years of unrighteousness, they had the perfect king. It says, though America had the agreed upon, keyword, agreed upon, wonderful, perfect president, that everybody finally went, whew, that guy's awesome, or that gal's awesome. Maybe that's what it's going to take to have the perfect president. Maybe we need a female in there. Let's go. Let's make it happen. I don't care. But can you imagine if every news channel you turned on, woo, the praises of the president. This is amazing. We could get all that fixed and we could have the best governors and the best senators and we could have the best laws all formed around a biblical sense of morality and authority for God's word. It could all be in place and God would still go eh your hearts so do we need important laws and does our Constitution matter absolutely not my focus it's in my purview it's part of my life not my focus the focus of the church the focus of followers of Jesus is that overwhelming driving question God what are you doing in me right now and through us collectively what is the role of the church right now is the role of the church to fix washington i beg no because i look at passages like this and i listen to jesus teaching and jesus doesn't necessarily try to fix rome he addresses rome he tells them how to live in context of rome but it's not his focus god is glad that they've restored these things not as focus important valuable yes not the focus see you and i as 21st century americans we have a lot of problems putting things in right order we want to take one thing drag it to the center and ignore everything else and make one thing to everything we are great at that it's seen in some of our relationships some of you relationally as husband and wife you could do things for years wonderfully up but it's this one thing you could be part of this church do you know you are one message from hating me no you know you are i've been doing this a long time people that said oh pastor i'll never leave the church i'm in i'm serving in this servant of that one sermon later out the door never see you ever again Hmm. most pastors when they take a church they know within a year it's going to be a totally different con- congregation because most people there that vote them in that want them to be there soon are going to reject them after the first year. Issue? Yes. Focus? No. Focus is what is God doing in this season. And that's where I want you to participate. I want you to go to the polls and vote. I want you to watch the news. I want you to read the articles. I want you to pay attention. I want you to consider all of that. Yes, 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 yes. A thousand times yes, but not your focus.